If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. All too often, reads one line in Norman Davies' new book, George I and George II are seen as grumpy, German and indistinguishable, or bad, sad, mad and fat. Though the House of Hanover doesn't have the best reputation for producing successful or popular rulers, as Norman Davies goes on to reveal, there are many reasons to remember George II's reign. In his new volume on the lesser-known king for the Penguin Monarchs series, Davies explains why his rule can be seen as much more successful than he might expect. Putting the questions to Norman was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Norman Davis, a fellow of the British Academy and Professor Emeritus of CCUCL and an honorary fellow of St Anthony's College, Oxford and Clare College. You've written extensively on the history of continental Europe and Eastern Europe in particular. If I can start by asking you what brought you to write this biography of George II as we know him for this Penguin Monarch series. A total accident. I was ill when Penguin were selecting the uh, authors for the uh, Mini Monarch series. And when I came round, my editor told me that George II was the only monarch left, the most unpopular monarch in uh, in the book. So I was uh, landed with writing about him, and it was a very fortunate accident. <laughs> right, yes, a very happy accident indeed. And you mentioned his unpopularity there, which I hope we can certainly dig into in this interview. Um, but I wanted to also clarify, as you do in your book, um, his name, because we do know him as George II uh, in popular history, certainly. But how, how do you address him in his book and what, what are the issues there? Well, practically everybody calls him George II, which is his British royal title. But since I was writing a biography, and this man was a monarch, not only of Great Britain, but also um, he was a prince-elector of the Holy Roman Empire, i.e. no small position, uh, I felt that it was inappropriate simply to use his British... English language title. In Germany, he was Georg August, 
or in Latin, equally, Georgius Augustus. So I thought the um, proper compromise was to call him George II Augustus, simply to show that there's more to him than this, um, the British side of his life and reign. And um, as far as I know, nobody else has thought of doing that. But um, there's a bit at the beginning of the book where I explain why I, um, I don't uh, use uh, all the conventional names and titles. For example, in British history, everybody talks about the Hanoverians. But this is a, a name invented in 1701 for the purposes of the Act of Settlement. Uh, nobody uh, had heard of the Hanoverians before that. The, you know, the real name of this dynasty were the, uh, were the Guelphs, or Welfen in, in German. And uh, so I, in the book, uh, prefer talking of the Hanoverian Guelphs rather than just the Hanoverians, and so on. I wonder if it's worth reminding listeners of how his father, um, who we know as George I, did did come to reign in in Great Britain. Because I I know we're talking about George II here, but it plays a huge part in obviously the man that we're talking about. Well, of course, George II came to Britain with his father in seventeen fourteen, and that was a huge change in his life, uh, as it was for. Um, Great Britain, which uh, received a a new dynasty as as monarchs, uh, it's a long story, of course. But the Stuarts, who had reigned in England, Scotland, and Ireland as you know in personal union, uh, had no heirs. And in seventeen hundred and one, King William, who himself was of course a Dutchman and uh, was reigning in union between, between England and the Netherlands, he persuaded the English Parliament to invite uh, his old friend, is the worst put it, the uh, Dowager Duchess of Brunswick, Kallenberg, to be named as the heir to the Stuarts. Dowager Duchess Sophie died in 1714, just before Queen Anne. So it was the Dowager, Dowager Duchess's son, Georg Ludwig, who we know as George I, uh, came to the throne uh, and initiated um, a long period, however long it was, more than 100 years of uh, Hanoverian Guelph monarchs. Yes. So what was um, George Augustus's uh, experience then coming to Britain with his father? Um, you write that his apprenticeship in the royal trade gave him little hands-on experience. So mm -hmm. what was his life like as heir apparent? Well, he, <clears throat> he was born in 1683, uh, with absolutely no prospect of um, succeeding to uh, any foreign throne, basically. 
Although he was, uh, he lived in a cluster of German principalities who all had ambitions of becoming monarchs. For example, the, his neighbor, the Oldenburgs, were kings of Denmark. Uh, another neighbor, the Hohenzollerns, the electors of Brandenburg, became kings of Prussia. Uh, yet another neighbor, the Vettins of Saxony, Saxony became kings of Poland-Lithuania. So it was not, as it were, completely outlandish for a German prince to become a foreign king, but uh, his chances of being one of them were pretty slim uh, until almost out of the blue, uh, they learned that the English Parliament had um, selected his grandmother, the Dowager Don Duchess, as the heiress to Queen Anne. Uh, and, of course, it happened. <laughs> In 1714, he came with his father and a considerable entourage to London, where they, uh, uh, this is, again, not, much emphasized. In London, uh, they uh, ran both the Kingdom of Great Britain and the electorate of Brunswick, Hanover, uh, whatever you want to call it, together. Uh, St. James's Palace had ministers from Germany and from Britain, both uh, competing to, to uh, have access to the, the monarch. And how did this um, sort of work in practice? What did this composite state mean for for the, their their rule? Well, it meant that the composite state um, had different priorities than just you know, the Kingdom of Great Britain. In the the mind of George Augustus, the main purpose. Uh, of his uh, rule and reign was to keep this composite state together, which meant protecting the interests of Great Britain and Ireland in tandem with those of the electorate uh, and uh, various duchies he, he possessed in, in Germany. Uh, this caused ructions to one wing of uh, British uh, Opinion. At some point, I call them the proto-Brexiteers, who, uh, you know, were of the opinion that the interests of England—I mean, England, uh, not just the uh, the British kingdoms—you know—were paramount. But he survived all of that, and he reigned for thirty-three years, and his reign was simply not the disaster which many historians have, have, have described. You use the term composite state in your book to um, define how what George II Augustus's rule looked like. Can you um, talk about that term a little more and what it means? Yes, the <clears throat> composite state is um, a frequent term in modern, early modern European history. Uh, it was actually coined by British historians about 40 years ago. Um, the late Professor Königsberger, who I, uh, I knew in London, uh, I think was the pioneer, 
Uh, it was taken up very much by John Eliot writing about Spain. But for some odd reason, it's never been taken up for the history of you know, the British Isles, which, as far as I can see, was um, the scene of a composite state for uh, various forms for a very long time. You know, the Stuarts ran a composite state. There was no United Kingdom in the 17th century. Uh, the kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland were all separate, but joined in personal union. So what you have there is a personal state. If you like, parallel to the um, composite state of Castile and Aragon in Spain. And the, uh, this model continues in a different form under the Hanoverian Guelphs. There is one monarch, one person, who is simultaneously king of Great Britain, king of Ireland, and the ruler of uh, the electorate uh, uh, of Brunswick Luneburg Kallenberg <laughs> for its full title. You know, this is a composite state if ever there was one. And yet, for some reason, it's not been uh, applied uh, to British history. So let's see what, uh, what the reaction to that is. <laughs> so what are some of the factors then that have led to George II's reign being uh, characterised as so unsuccessful? Well, uh, this is a puzzle to me. Uh, it seems to have very little to do with his actual activities and achievements. Uh, historians have either ignored him completely. You know, well, one of the uh, facts that uh, I came across, he's not even mentioned in 1066 and all that, which is all about good and bad kings. I know it's sort of children's comedy in a way, but it's, um, it reflects how you know, ordinary people think about all of this. And he's not even there. And add to that, some historians, especially in the late 19th and 20th century, call him you know, horrible names. You know, they call him vile or um, you know, an idiot, uh, you know, total incompetence, a non-entity. That sort of thing, which simply is, I think, inappropriate. There's a historian at Cambridge, Andrew Thompson, who's written a, uh, no, a large biography of George II a few years ago, and Thompson has put this straight. George II wasn't a nincompoop or a non-entity. Uh, you can say all sorts of things about him, but he, like, he's, he managed this country and other important countries for 33 years and he you know he didn't um fall off his perch he presided over you know the rise of the first british empire which as it were came to a peak in 1759 during the seven years war at the end of his reign so uh, um, he was neither unimportant nor nor sort of horribly incompetent Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, historians and now the public in large are talking about slavery and the slave trade, quite rightly, which uh, in a sense came to the highest peak 
in the middle of the 18th century. And quite obviously, George II was in charge when, when this happened. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You've written um, that he wrote, he left no diaries or memoirs and rarely elaborated on his opinions. How much do you think that is a factor in, in how he is remembered? Well, because there is a lack of abundant sources, historians, I think, have been uh, able to to ride roughshod over uh, what actually happened. I'm not an expert in, in this field, and I suspect there may be more in the Royal Archives than people guess. For example... Not all historians seem to know that George II and his father didn't write in English or in German. They wrote in French. French was their language. They were French speakers. That, that's how he was brought up. Uh, and George Augustus would write to his wife, Caroline, uh, in French. They spoke in French. Uh, and I would love to... Um, to explore in the archives, see if there isn't some sort of cache of um, correspondence in French that um, has somehow been overlooked. It's also true that the archives in Hanover, uh, when the electorate of Hanover became a kingdom in the 19th century, all the papers, or most of the papers, about uh, their icons of London were sent to Hanover, and then Hanover was overrun by the Prussians, and of course the Prussians looted all the archives, and many of them have sort of disappeared in Germany. So German historians don't have a you know, huge mass of material to work with. Okay, well then what is known about how his rule was received in Great Britain at the time? I mean, there are some fairly famous oppositions in terms of Jacobite support and etc., how, how can we characterise the response to his reign? Well, George Augustus saw off the Jacobite challenge. This is what kept him in power. However good or bad the uh, Hanoverian Guelphs might have been, they had one trump card, namely if they were removed, you would get some something a lot worse, namely the, the Jacobite clan who, uh, um, uh, you know, they really were uh, incompetent and all the rest of it. Um, and they were um, very much uh, French uh, puppets until the French gave up on them as well after 1745. So um, that's one thing that, uh, that uh, George Augustus did. He secured the 
the continuing reign of his family, but that's only sort of a bit of it. He, um, I think, in uh, when he was um, an old man, he would have taken considerable satisfaction in having saved this composite state. He not only greatly increased the wealth and power of Great Britain, he saved the electorate, which the, the French were constantly trying to invade and, um, uh, and remove. And it, it's this sort of joint, the success of his joint interests, which um, I think should be emphasised. Well, some evidence of this sort of joint proposition I wanted to pick up on is is the fact that um, the Prime Minister, if I can use that term, of of the electorate in Hanover lived in Downing Street, which seems remarkable. Well, that's just a, a simple fact. Downing Street was not yet Downing Street, but uh, Count Botmer, as he was called, the Premier Minister of the electorate, lived in what became Downing Street for longer than Walpole did. He lived. He was there from 1716 to 1732, which is 16 years. I think that Walpole was there for eight. But nobody mentions it. Somehow, British historians, you know, English historians in particular, simply select the, you know, the facts that... Uh, relate to them rather than to the, um, whatever, historical reality. In the, the reign of George I and George II, the, uh, the government was, was a dual government of the British kingdoms and the electorate, both together in London. Things changed a bit uh, well, considerably in the following reign under George III, uh, who never went to Hanover and, and sort of never took an interest in it. But uh, George II, George Augustus, had lived in, in Germany for uh, you know, half his life. He went to Hanover e- every other year when he could uh, and spent, you know, not a... Uh, it wasn't English historians say he went on holiday. He didn't go on holiday. He went to govern his German possessions. And uh, the picture seems sort of obvious to me, but um, perhaps I, I have a, you know, this view that once you realise that he wasn't just the, you know, a British king, then all, all these other things follow. Yes, and there are other factors you write about um, as well in terms of his actions as a cultural patron. Can we talk a little more about his actions there. Yes, well, if you look up whatever the book of quotations or the websites, you know, uh, about popular quotations, one that always appears about George II is that he, he was a you know, boorish Philistine who supposedly hated poets and painters. Well, the, the letter P for poets and painters is a consonant which Germans can pronounce perfectly well. Uh, this quotation is fabricated, and uh, I'm not quite certain where it comes from. But uh, he wasn't a Philistine. He was a leading cultural patron, but less in England than in Germany. 
Uh, and in the colonies, the example I use is that he founded three great universities, Göttingen, which bears his name to this day. It's the, the Gorga Augusta University of Göttingen. He founded Princeton in New Jersey and uh, Columbia in New York. And these are not sort of minor things. Uh, but because he didn't found whatever, an Oxford college or a Cambridge college, uh, like he doesn't count in the English narrative, which is unfortunate. Yes, I understand. Um, one thing he is famous for and the Georgians are more famous for are familial rifts. And I wondered if you could talk a little about um, George Augustus's uh, relationship with his father and in turn his own son as well. Yes, this is a, a very sorry story. George Augustus's mother was the victim of what we would now call uh, whatever uh, abuse of women. She was incarcerated for um, more than half her life, and her son, George Augustus, was never allowed to see her from the age of 11, never allowed even to write a letter to her. Uh, and he obviously d developed a, um, you know, a serious grudge against his father. Because his father was doing the incarcerations. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well the, all sorts of things. But uh, his father was a pretty brutal patriarch. For example, he wouldn't allow his son to, um, to join the army until he had produced an heir, a son and heir. And for somebody who had been trained from adolescence to be a cavalry officer, this was a, you know, a serious imposition. And there's, there's, there's lots of things like that. But in due course, of course, George Augustus uh, developed the same sort of uh, complex about his own son, who had been held back in Hanover uh, for um, 14 years, really during his formative years, when the rest of the family uh, emigrated to London. So Prince Frederick, as he becomes known, when he comes to England in 1728, he's out to, um, to get revenge on his father and causes all sorts of um, scandals and outrages and demands and so on. Uh, and causes, you know, the neck, the rift of the next generation, the intergenerational violence, as, as some people call it. Uh, I say it's a very sad story, but one has to say that Queen Carolyn, who was George's wife and the mother of the of Prince Frederick, uh, shared the. Um, the monarchs, you know, uh, disgust at the behaviour of, of their son. So it is dirty linen, but it doesn't seem to have affected, as it were, the, the government of the, of the two countries that the, the monarch was responsible for. I wondered if we could give a our listeners a sense of George Augustus as a young man. You write that he's not as potentially attractive as his father, and he might have slightly different attitudes. And when he arrives in England um, at court, what sort of life does he set himself up with there? 
Well, uh, I don't think that George I was particularly attractive. Of course, very few people in England could speak to him, so and he was rather handsome, but he was a bit of a monster behind the scenes. And I think he got away with a lot of things because he was pretty distant and aloof. George II, George Augustus, was not the same. I don't think he was a, as, uh, a monster in the way that uh, his father might be uh, described. But he, he, was, he was very vain. He liked to dress up and go to the, uh, the theatre and opera. He apparently wore one of the biggest wigs uh, in the land. He was uh, notoriously bad-tempered. He apparently th- threw off his wig and his hat and trampled on them when he got angry. <laughs> but uh, I think those are um, relatively you know, minor faults. He was rather steadfast. He knew what he wanted. And in the end, um, after Queen Caroline died, he had much better relations with his children. Uh, the royal family became rather um, more pleasant than it than it had been, and as I say, his generally speaking, his his government was rather successful. When uh, it's again interesting, when he died, several uh, of the uh, ministers and aristocrats who knew him spoke uh, quite well of him. One of them you know, said he may not have been a um, uh, well, an attractive person, but he was not, not a bad prince. And I think that perhaps sums him up. Well, one factor explored in your book, which we should definitely discuss, is the um, slave trade. Obviously, George II, Augustus, uh, took charge of Great Britain in an era when colonial slavery was rife and and British ships were very much leading and taking part in in the Atlantic, transatlantic slave trade. Um, And I wondered if you could talk a bit about how uh, if not his complicity, what? How can we characterise George II's actions in, and his involvement in this trade? Mm. Well, this is another curiosity. You know, historians and now the public in large are talking about slavery and the slave trade quite rightly, which, uh, in a sense, came to the highest peak in the middle of the 18th century and. Quite obviously, George II was in charge when when this happened. And yet no biography, as far as I can tell, has ever even mentioned it. And again, it's, it's very odd why there's a sort of black hole in, in, in British history in regard to these things. Uh, not only to the, you know, the slave trade, but to um, you know, the monarchy's involvement in it. Uh, the the facts seem pretty cert- pretty clear. George Augustus was the governor of the sea- South Sea Company, which was formed to to command the uh, the trade with the Spanish colonies after the Treaty of Utrecht. He got out of it in 1718, I suspect, on Walpole's advice. Walpole sold his shares in the South Sea Company. Uh, made a huge fortune just before the South Sea bubble. But 
George Augustus comes back as the governor of the South Sea Company in 1727 at his accession and remains there till the end of his of his reign. Uh, he's also um, involved in the, the the management of the British colonies. Like he founds Georgia, which starts off in the 1730s as a slavery-free colony, but finds after a few years that it can't compete with its slave-owning neighbours, um, South Carolina and so on. So it, <clears throat> Georgia, uh, obviously with the, the, uh, the king's knowledge and um, acceptance, becomes uh, one of the slave-owning colonies. George Augustus also is the patron of the Royal African Company, which is a major slaving uh, company, and he founds, you know, with Act of Parliament in the early 1750s, the the successor, the Royal Company of African Merchants, I think it's called. But uh, no, he's he's involved in this uh, in all aspects of it throughout his reign. And you know his exact complicity is hard. You know one would have to do a very detailed study to uh, to establish what was what. But um, the fact that nobody has mentioned it, it seems to me extraordinary. Uh, there's one another thing which um, struck me, and I don't think other historians have paid much attention, is that at that time in Germany, serfdom was the norm for landed estates. And as a a large-scale landowner in Germany, he was a serf master. He had hundreds of thousands of serfs. And although serfdom is not exactly the same as slavery, it was certainly an inhuman system. And I'm pretty certain that uh, whatever his attitude to slavery was, and we don't have any record of him saying what it, what his attitude was, but whatever it was, it would be uh, determined by his acceptance of serfdom in his you know home territory. You write uh, your your book finishes with a with a chapter on his legacy. I wonder if you can offer our listeners um, a thought there on 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 how yes. we remember George II. Yes, George II, George Augustus, died after 33 years on the throne. Uh, as I say, um, a reign of considerable achievements, and yet no memorial to him was sort of ever built. You go to Westminster Abbey, uh, you see the enormous monuments to uh, George Frederick Handel, who was his music master, but nothing at all, nothing, I say nothing, one tiny tile in the floor of the Lady Chapel of Westminster Abbey has his initials, which indicate that he's buried in the vault in the crypt below. But that's the only sign of this British monarch who'd been around for decades and is somehow 
obliterated, and I can't quite understand why. He's not the no the greatest of our monarchs, but he's not the worst by a long by a long chalk. I wonder, um, to sort of wrap us up, would you? Is there anything else that you'd like readers to bear in mind ahead of getting to know this monarch a little better again? Oh dear, you, you you catch me out. I I um, put considerable emphasis on the language which we use to describe these monarchs, men, and they were men, um, who ruled composite states. The, the language that, uh, you know, I, I talked about titles, but there's more, more than that. Uh, I think it's wrong for history books to translate everything, all events, into English without reference to the languages which were actually used. If you anglicise everything, you destroy a lot of the flavour, the sort of multicultural, multilinguist flavour which uh, pertained uh, in his environment. Now, just a little example, but again, one of the quotations in every book of quotations, every website, is when Queen Caroline, the dying Queen Ca uh, Caroline, tries to urge him to remarry when she dies. And he, he's, he's quoted as saying, oh, no, I shall have mistresses. But as I say, that's not what he actually said. I'll leave you to think what it was he said. Uh, but it wasn't that. That was Norman Davies. George II, not just a British monarch, is part of the Penguin Monarch series, which gives an account of the reign of each monarch of England. It's published by Alan Lane and is out now. You can find a link in the show notes. And if you're interested in the Georgians, there's plenty more to discover at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about the modern history of Wales. 